On October 4, 1957, the former Soviet Union launched the first man-made satellite into orbit. Sputnik, which means traveler or wayfarer in Russian, sent back this eerie signal for three weeks before its batteries ran out. The satellite itself continued in orbit for two more months until atmospheric drag caused it to fall back to Earth on January 4, 1958. Later that same year, the United States answered the Soviet challenge with Explorer 1. And by then, the space race was off and running. Space is open to us now, and our eagerness to share its meaning is not governed by the efforts of others. We go into space because whatever mankind must undertake, free men must fully share. I therefore ask the Congress, above and beyond the increases I have earlier requested for space activities, to provide the funds which are needed to meet the following national goals. First, I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the Earth. No single space project in this period will be more impressive to mankind or more important for the long-range exploration of space. And none will be so difficult or expensive to accomplish. And the benefits from that have been many. Consider that before we had satellite photography of Earth, we had no idea the true shape of hurricanes and typhoons. We knew these were massive storms, and certainly we felt their effects on the ground. But we couldn't necessarily see the rapid development over the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans let alone predict when and where they would strike. Now their forbidding eyes and swirling clouds are common and online. So throughout much of the 60s, 70s, and 80s, space activity remained the playground for nation-states that could afford it, mainly the United States and the former Soviet Union, now Russia. It was an exclusive club. Then, in the 1990s, we started to see commercialization, and we started to see other nations join that club. The private satellites were being launched by these governments, but they were still largely administered by the corporations themselves. And then, only recently, have we seen the launches become commercial. SpaceX, Blue Origin, and others. So, in 2020, a group championed by the U.S. Air Force and U.S. Space Command created a unique capture-the-flag competition, the Hackasack program. The idea was to see whether hackers on the ground could gain control of a satellite in low Earth orbit. This, then, is the story of that challenge. I'm Robert Famosi, and this is Error Code. satellite technology that we're seeing today has been democratized and put into the hands of non-nation states. It's been put into the hands of universities and even high schools and other entities that are building software-defined radios now that can easily communicate with unencrypted uh, communications channels using, you know, very easy to decipher protocols. This is Frank Pound. He's a technical advisor with the U.S. Space Force team that is hosting the Hackasack program. A few years ago, when Frank was transitioning out of the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA, he saw the writing on the wall, so to speak. And he was early. At that time, SpaceX was still crashing 
and the idea of commercial space operations seemed just out of reach. Yet Frank sensed, and sensed correctly, that successful launches by SpaceX and Blue Origin and others would eventually happen. As a kid, Frank grew up in Florida, right across from the Kennedy Space Center. And he remembers literally waiting for the school bus in the morning and would see rockets being launched, not just with astronauts, but with satellites going into orbit and probes going into deep space. For him, the rocket launches were normal. And so, as an adult, Frank went to work in the aerospace industry. Eventually, he found his way to DEF CON. For over 30 years, DEF CON has been the largest hacking conference in the world. And in the last 10 years, the committee that runs DEF CON has started to allow various interests to hold their own villages. These are mini conferences with themes such as lock picking. And there's also an ICS village where they have a model water treatment plant for hackers to hack. And then there's the aerospace village. Ostensibly, it's about hacking airplanes. But no, they didn't park a 787 in one of the ballrooms at Caesars. They had virtual models, which allowed you to hack into simulated systems. The aerospace village was the wake-up call to the aerospace industry about what's possible, what thinking outside the box might actually look like. But why stop at 30,000 feet? I mean, the second part of that word, aerospace, is space. Frank, who was involved with the Aerospace Village, he became involved with Hackasat. In fact, Frank was there at the very beginning. The Hackasat project, when we first got together in the fall of 2019, in sort of this uh, uh, island out on the coast of Virginia called Wallops Island, NASA has a facility out there. We had sort of a, not really a secret meeting, but we wanted to get away from everyone and sort of conceive what this would be like. We have people like me, uh, independent contractors who are advising Space Force on the future of cyber warfare in space. Um, but it, it's it's all basically this big team of people that that come together uh, to work on this problem in in a very fun, engaging way that the public really enjoys. Um, and that sort of parallels what we saw, I guess, in the past seven years or so with the creation of Space Force. Um, uh, SpaceX and companies like SpaceX starting to really get a rhythm into launching lots of satellites in space over and over again to make it sort of boring almost because we're so used to seeing it. Um, so it, it really comes at a good time. What he means when launching and supporting a satellite in orbit was the work of a nation state. It was an example of security through obscurity. I mean, who would hack a satellite? Who could? Uh, thought patterns that, you know, when satellite design, which was, you know, you've got a, an exclusive club of big companies and big nation states uh, that are the ones building these things. They're very expensive and the technology is very hard to develop. And so nobody would ever be able to tap into any of that stuff, even if it was unencrypted, because it was the tech was just so far out of reach. 1940s, 50s and 60s, the government and very large corporations, they had access to computers and security. Well, it was an afterthought. Then, with the democratization of personal computing starting in 1980s, we saw the few computer viruses that were out there. Remember, they were spread by floppy disk. And then, with the commercial internet in the 1990s, that's when we really started seeing hacking for criminal purposes take off. You know, first you saw the democratization of the internet, and then suddenly we had all these internet issues we had to solve, because originally the internet was, you know, created 
back in the 60s and 70s by uh, ARPA, which became DARPA, as a research network to you know study how we would communicate you know after a nuclear war occurred. So they wanted to build all these you know resilient nodes. They didn't ever really plan to unleash it on the world uh, so soon, but that kind of just happened, and, and then we had to put all these band aids on it, uh, like encryption, right, which was never built in from the start. Here's where the rush of innovation, compounded with the relatively inexpensive means to get into space, starts to sound like a problem we have with IoT. I think that that's actually a really good parallel. This is Logan Finch. He's the Hackasat technical lead, working with a company called Cromulus, a research and engineering simulation and training company. His job is to simulate an actual spacecraft in orbit so that hackers on Earth can try to own it. And when you think about it, that's not such a crazy idea. And in a lot of ways, space is, is, is a lot like IoT, you know, in so much that it's, you know, small embedded, you know, a lot of embedded systems, small processors. Yeah, space is having its own IoT moment. I mean, with IoT, there are these gadgets and they're already out there. And by some estimates, with IoT, we're talking about 25 billion of them most with no way to update their firmware or to stay secure. The same is true with some of the satellites already in near-Earth orbit. Okay, not 25 billion satellites, but you get the general idea that these satellites that were first launched into orbit several years ago are based on technology that was developed in the early 1960s. So the concept that someone on Earth, you know, anyone on Earth other than a nation-state, could have access, well, it wasn't really thought of as possible until recently. This just happens to coincide with the flood of new small satellites from Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, and Mark Zuckerberg. They're launching constellations of cheap satellites to fill our night sky with ribbons of tiny diamonds. Ironically, these cheap satellites are to provide more internet access to relatively inaccessible parts of the world. We're not talking about nation states anymore with vast resources. No, now we're talking about billionaires and big corporations. And do you think they take the time to really harden the circuitry on those devices? I think you already know the answer. And maybe now you'll start to agree that, well, the problem that we have with satellites today sounds an awful lot like what we have with IoT. And just like IoT, the threat is now that all of these thousands of satellites already in orbit and those that are about to join them are vulnerable. On the flip side, and this makes it potentially even more of an interesting problem, is um, space technology as a whole, um, you know, is, is really lagging behind the rest of, you know, kind of normal IoT stuff. Normal IoT stuff, such as there's a feeling that a disposable electronic device, such as an internet-connected toothbrush, doesn't need basic security. Yet, through the app, it's possible that it could leak personal information. If not registered user's name, address, and email, it could also reveal health issues. So we're starting to make the same mistakes with space. And it's sort of a wake-up call. It's like, okay, we, we, we need to start you know, encrypting these links. We need to do a better job of, of protecting this information and applying some you know, modern cybersecurity standards uh, to satellite design, especially for uh, commercial, low-Earth orbit, uh, you know, sort of low-cost satellites. So the first Hackasack was held at DEF CON 28 in 2020. The timing was, as Frank said, just right. 
That same year, presenting at Black Hat 2020, held just a few days before DEF CON, James Brevoeur gave a talk called Whispers Among the Stars, a practical look at perpetuating satellite eavesdropping attacks. And I remember watching that talk online. Here's this kid from Oxford University citing examples of satellite communication that he'd been able to intercept on his own. Using a $90 satellite dish and a $200 digital video broadcasting satellite tuner, which he found secondhand online. It's August 2018. A sysadmin logs into the control panel of a wind turbine in southern France to update its firmware. More than 600 kilometers away, their PHP session token appears on my screen. Eight months later, an Egyptian oil tanker pulls into the port of Sfax, Tunisia with a malfunctioning alternator on board. From my vantage point, more than 1,500 kilometers away, I learn that this ship will be out of commission for at least a month, and I learn the name and passport number of the engineer who's flying away to fix it. Just this summer, 13,000 meters above the Atlantic Ocean, the accountant of a Polish real estate group put the finishing touches on their annual financial report. The Word document she prepared reached my computer at the same time it arrived at the inboxes of her colleagues at her parent company, one of Europe's largest private commercial real estate trusts. How does this sort of thing happen? How do I get this kind of information and how do we protect it in the future? With such a low barrier to entry, Prevera said that an attacker could be in a different country or on a different continent. Here's a researcher intercepting business communications that are bouncing off a commercial satellite in orbit around the world. He's not attacking the ground-based servers. He's relying on the unencrypted communications that are being uplinked and downlinked from the satellite. And so what you saw with that Black Hat presentation in 2020 was an example of that where you know, the, the sort of the, the tale of, of that legacy still exists in a lot of places. 11 years before James Prever gave his 2020 talk, in the summer of 2009, Adam Laurie, also known as Major Malfunction, gave another talk at Black Hat in which he confessed that he had been studying hacking satellites since 2000 or so. I have actually been doing this for a long time. As you'll see when, when I get to the slides, a lot of this research is over 10 years old um, and I've just recently restarted work on it and the reason was I saw a, a video of a talk I think it was given at Hack in the Box or somewhere um, by Jim Giavidi and however you pronounce that other name um, and they did a, a talk called Hacking a Bird in the Sky and if you google for it and find the video it's actually really really cool what they did was they um, they actually took over a satellite uplink and um, figured out how to like you know fix the IP address and stuff and they ended up sending their own traffic via satellite and one of the things they said in it at the end of the, the video was um, well you know we're sure lots of people have been doing this kind of stuff for a long time but they haven't talked about it and so they kind of put out a call for anyone who'd done any satellite hacking to come forward um, and talk about it. So uh, I thought, well, hang on a minute, there's all that stuff I did you know, a few years ago. Why don't I dig that out of the box and see if it's still applicable, see what's changed, see if I can actually do something new with it. So that got me interested in it again, and I dug it all out and I started playing. Um, and that was about three years ago, and I've been promising to make this talk 
for about three years. And I, you know, people have been saying, what are you up to? Oh, I'm playing with satellites and stuff. It's like, okay, so why the hell has it taken you three years to publish something um, when you already know what you're doing, you've got all the tech and it, you know, you've got it all there. Why is it taking so long? Um, well, the simple answer is when you start pulling stuff off satellites, there's a lot of boobies out there. Okay? So porn, basically, gets in the way. So you think, I'm going to do a night hacking on, on satellite stuff, and you start hacking away, and then all this porn starts coming down. And it's just like this. It's very distracting. Okay, so. so that's why it's taken three years to do something pretty simple. If hacking satellites as far back as the early 2000s surprises you, it shouldn't. With traditional embedded system development and IoT development, there's a lot of trial and error. You can make tons of mistakes until you get it right. I think the space industry finished their trial and error period in the 60s, and, uh, and they're very, very hesitant to, to do crazy experiments um, because it's just, you know, they learned their lesson with all the, the rapid development in the 60s. You know, we had uh, you know, some crazy accidents. You know, the three astronauts burn up on the launch pad because they had a small fire in the capsule, and uh, then you had Apollo 13. And, uh, you know, all sorts of things were learned. I think the Russians themselves had a bunch of accidents, too. So, so the space industry learned from that. And they're very hesitant uh, to introduce new things without, like, analyzing them to the nth degree. And like I said, you know, when we got together in 2019, I think we timed it just right. We, we knew that these problems were going to exist even well before 2019. I was looking into some of this stuff uh, in my prior position. And I knew this was going to be an issue because we could see companies like SpaceX, we could see all the democratization of the technology making its way into the commercial sector. And no longer was it this exclusive club. Now it was in the hands of pretty much anyone. A lot of that has to do with the fact that, you know, you're putting things in space. You want to make sure that it has heritage, that it's going to work, that you're not going to you know, spend all this money building, designing, launching it and have it just get you know fried by radiation or something like that. So the industry tends to stick with like tried and true solutions. And, and because of that, you might not necessarily get all the modern hardware that, you know, might exist in a more tr traditional IoT system on the ground. So you have to manage that as well, which is an interesting problem for sure. We need to do a better job of, of protecting this information and applying some, you know, modern cybersecurity standards uh, to satellite design, especially for uh, commercial low earth orbit uh, you know, sort of low cost satellites. There's going to be a lot of them. There's a lot of them now. They're going to be used for all manner of different, you know, applications. Here's where the rush of innovation, compounded with the relatively inexpensive means to get into space, starts to sound a lot like the problem we have with the Internet of Things. People are going to be monitoring their crops and they're going to be doing sort of like really, you know, highly high resolution pinpoint weather um, uh, analytics and other sorts of analytics with all of these, uh, you know, things flying around in space, call them things because there's so many different types of satellites now. So, so yeah, so it's, it's sort of a sort of watershed moment. So again, if we had an IOT problem with the existing satellites in orbit, it's about to get much worse as more and more tiny specialized satellites start to get launched. Which is funny because we just said that space systems have to be rigorously tested. So what are people like Logan and Frank doing about all this? Well, they're taking this esoteric problem directly to the InfoSec community. They're taking this problem to DEFCON, for example. 
They're building a unique capture the flag competition called Hackasack that simulates the problems we've just outlined. Nobody's really ever done it before. And it's, it's an interesting problem because, you know, space in general is a system of systems. And that's what makes it simultaneously very, very interesting and a super cool cybersecurity problem, but also uh, difficult to make sure that we balance where we focus so that we actually have an interesting game with interesting challenges um, over the course of, you know, the amount of time that we can, you know, have like a final event, right? Most last year, the finals was 24 hours long. This year, it's going to be similar. Part of the, you know, the mission of Hackathon is to try and show the companies that are doing this that they should adopt these kind of best practices going forward. And I think it's definitely still a work in progress with contractors, stuff like that. There's always a certain amount of inertia to change. And, and I think trying to push these things now it will yield dividends in the future, um, which is the real, the real goal of Hackasat, especially from a Air Force and Space Force supporting it. Remember that Hackasack is sponsored by the U.S. Air Force and U.S. Space Command with support from U.S. Air Force Research Laboratory, or AFRL. The idea is to create a capture the flag that simulates what it's like to hack into and take over a satellite in orbit. The only problem is that people who know about orbital dynamics, like Logan, didn't necessarily know or even think like Frank, who had been involved with the all-military cyber stakes capture the flag. So, taking this original idea from an island off the coast of Virginia to the largest hacking conference on Earth, DEFCON, well, that, that took some work. And really, the first Hackasack back in 2020 was more of an introduction for all of those involved. That, you know, looking back at Hackasack 1 and, and looking now at, at what Logan's team is building uh, for for this Hackasat, it's it, we we kind of sometimes laugh about uh, some of the things that we were doing. So, how does one draw the interest of a traditional hacker? How do you draw the attention of those in the aerospace industry today? Well, you start out small. That first Hackasack back in 2020 wasn't trying to do everything all at once. It was, as I said, an introduction. Hackasat one brought the cybersecurity professionals, introduced them to space. The, the elite teams that came in, they'd never done like a space CTF before. They're like, what is this? So it was a good way to really introduce some of the components and some of the, the technical intricacies of, of, of a space system while not dwelling on all the details that you know, are really complicated. So the idea was to you know, try to simulate the reality of space. Pay attention to that word, simulate. When I first heard about Hackasat, I assumed that they were hacking a decommissioned satellite in orbit. Nah, they never left Las Vegas. That first year, they built models and they had them in a room at DEF CON. I think there were eight satellites that were enclosed in these uh, acrylic uh, balls that were rotating around to sort of simulate at least one degree of freedom. And they were elevated on an air table. So you had the, the satellite just kind of spinning on one axis. Okay, so that's kind of weird. A room with satellites in acrylic balls. But they really wanted to simulate the reality of the project. They wanted to get into the embedded systems that are orbiting the Earth today. So hardware aside, what's the real challenge? And around the walls of the competition area, you know, there was a, a picture of the moon. And so the idea um, throughout the competition was for, for the teams to fight through all of these challenges leading up to finally gaining full control of the spacecraft 
which was sort of spinning out of control on purpose, uh, patch these bugs that kept popping back up. They'd have to run in and patch them, but patch them in such a way that the spacecraft wasn't disabled or, or started spinning even more. Right there, teams had to contend with the physics of orbital dynamics. Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. At DEF CON, these were largely info security experts and not astrophysicists. So unlike the other CTF teams competing that year at DEF CON, the Hackasat teams needed to be both security experts and physics experts in order to succeed. The teams have to have experts who know about the you know, two-body problems. They know how to calculate uh, the position of the spacecraft in space. They know what it means to um, uh, drain the momentum out of a reaction wheel um, and desaturate reaction wheels. They understand all that stuff, but they also have to understand the you know, nitty-gritty details of buffer overflows and cyber vulnerabilities, and, and, uh, and they have to combine those two expertise areas uh, to really compete. Many of the teams had signed up that year without realizing that, and a few of the teams figured it out and made some progress stabilizing their satellites in orbit. And then pivot over from the main flight software over to the, the mission payload, which was the camera, and then fix bugs and fight through issues with it as well. Um, and finally, gain control of the camera and to demonstrate they had full control of the spacecraft. Not only did they have to you know, fix all of those issues, um, they also had to time the, the, the imager uh, to, 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 to take the picture at the proper time. Time, yes. Unlike hacking a server that is relatively close by on Earth, these satellites, they're up in space. An average jetliner, for example, flies at 30,000 feet above the Earth. Low Earth orbit, is 1,200 miles above the Earth. So there's going to be some latency in the signal. The signal has to travel at the speed of light to the satellite and then back down to Earth again. This latency, well, that was new to hackers. There was a nail biter right at the end of the competition because a couple teams actually got through the entire set of challenges, game control of the camera, and were in the act of downloading the picture of the moon, the JPEG. We had a team that was sort of looking at that um, uh, monitoring that. And, and it was really interesting to see that some of the images of the moon were taken, but they never made it to the ground station um, because the, 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 the time was, there was no time left. So imagine working your way through all the technical challenges only to be defeated by something as simple as the time it takes to send a photo back to Earth. Even so, the challenges in Hackasat 1 were largely biased toward the InfoSec community and not necessarily toward the astrophysicists. Space people would really understand it. Whereas in Hackasat 1, if you were like an aerospace engineer who flew satellites for a living, you would be a little confused about what we were doing in Hackasat 1. But if you came to the table today, you'd be like, wow, this is, this is like the real deal. This is a real space simulation. And so the, I think in Hackasat 1, the edge was to the cybersecurity experts uh, because there was a minimal amount of sort of space things they had to do. But now it's sort of, uh, you know, you're on equal footing. So for Hackasat 2, Logan and his team began to add more physics to the challenges. And while they continued to have physical models of the satellites in a room, they were adding more simulation to the digital side as well. 
I first got involved with Hackensat 2. I wasn't there for the first year Hackensat 1 in 2019. One of my mentors that that brought me into the company was one that was uh, that did most of that work. But I'm familiar with all of the the, the early Hackensat efforts, obviously. But yeah, so we we took the all of this you know initial build that we that we did for Hackensat 1, which I think over over time. We've been trying to add additional complexity to how we simulate and build a, a challenge that has the requisite difficulty, complexity, and realism where it makes sense, but also try and build a some sort of interesting game and challenge that will draw in these all these elite CTF teams and make them want to come and play and get interested in space cybersecurity. Hackensat 2 also began to expose some critical gaps in knowledge for the teams that were participating. What might have been obvious to people who work with satellites on a day-to-day basis, well, that escaped people who mostly work in information security. What we experienced last year, it, it sort of touches on some of the skill sets you see in the, the hardcore cybersecurity vulnerability research arena where you have people that are incredibly talented and able to like focus laser-like on a, on, a, on a really hard problem. And they're really good at discarding everything else in, around them, right? But unfortunately, I think that kind of hurt people because they have to be aware of all of these other issues like Logan was describing, like, you know, very simple issues like, you know, oh yeah, there's batteries that uh, lose their charge and to charge them, you have to, you know, turn the spacecraft such that the solar panels are pointed at the sun. And so that like that that problem that they discarded, you know, kind of hurt them, you know, r- really, really bad. They used to be like, oh, you didn't tell us that. It's a, it's a satellite. It has batteries. And if you let the charge run out, it's no longer going to be able to operate all the payloads and processors anymore. So, you know, we try and add in little additional tidbits of realism over time to show that, you know, running a satellite is a really complicated thing. There's people who that's their whole career is running and operating satellites and we can't always expect the, the cybersecurity professionals to have all of that knowledge, which is why you can pare back uh, complexity where it makes sense, um, just keep things interesting and approachable. But we want to use realism to prove a point where, where it makes sense, right? So by the second year, the training wheels had started to come off Hackasat. By introducing more realism, Hackasat exposed that satellites in space are really living in a hostile environment. So... It's, it's, it was kind of interesting and it's, it's probably not nice to laugh about it because I think a lot of people got really upset about that because it was like, oh, you know, we should have, should have remembered to do that. Um, but I think, I think that was a learning experience for everyone, right? Even us, because, you know, we just assumed they would do that. And so this year, you know, I think all the teams um, now are very, you know, clear and they understand what they need to do. And then last year we were able to add additional complexity in Hackensat 2. So we had multiple flight flight payloads and flight processors that were real subsystems and then running on actual hardware. So Hackensat 1 and 2 had physical components that the teams had to access and exploit. But with COVID and the global chip shortage, that really wasn't the sustainable model for Hackensat 3. Which uh, we've kind of gone, you know, back and forth over over the time frame of Hackensat of, you know, we can run stuff on real hardware, which has, you know, a lot of cool problems that you can add with, with a real piece of hardware that you're running on the ground. But 
um, at the end of the day, you're still stuck having to maintain and and run and build all this real hardware. And with the pandemic, we've had you know all sorts of issues with supply chain, um, procuring electronic components and all that. For Hackasat 3 in 2022, the team went into a completely virtual simulation and it had its own pros and cons. You know, as we add complexity, we can add in certain, you know, cool problems. Like last year, we added in a simulation of all the, the, the power system of a real spacecraft. And at the beginning of the competition, some of the teams didn't realize that you'd have to, you know, maintain the, the state of life or yeah. the state of charge of your batteries of your satellite and point the solar arrays and, you know, keep your satellite alive. And I think the additional problems this year that we didn't introduce last year, and I say we, it's really Logan and his team, is that the satellites this year are going to be in orbit. Right. So there's the battery issue, but now there's going to be a timing issue. Imagine trying to hack a server that only allows you access for up to 10 minutes every hour. And that's the issue with satellites in space. They're going to be in lower orbit. So that means you have about 10 minutes at a time per pass, pass meaning passing overhead the antenna on Earth, where you can actually do your work, right, as a cybersecurity expert. It's not like you, you know, are on the internet and you're hacking a computer a thousand miles away where it's got an IP address that you can continually access and you get to try and try and try and, uh, you know, work on it and gather intelligence about it and do all these things. With the satellite in low Earth orbit, you know, it's completely different. Uh, and not only that, you have to make sure that your antenna is pointed in the right direction. You have to gimbal your antenna to sort of point at the satellite as it's orbiting the Earth. Um, and it's, it's, in, it's not... Um, any, any, anything like traditional C, a traditional CTF, you know, where you've got these static machines that are physically available the whole time. So that's, you, this year is going to be interesting to see how they handle that. Um, over time, Hackasat has been building and adding complexity and, you know, teaching all these teams and in industry, adding additional parts to show what, what a real space, space system looks like. Eventually, you know, where we're going to get to the point where we're going to, you know, be you know, doing the real thing. Logan's talking about Hackasat 4 in 2023, which will finally involve a real satellite orbiting the Earth, one that the U.S. Space Force will put into orbit in the spring of 2023. And, and that's, you know, been a really cool opportunity to keep, you know, adding in um, and, and showing off, you know, all the different parts that, you know, go into operating one of these systems and then be able to showcase all the the actual the cybersecurity side once you once you yeah you know built up that low level knowledge that's needed to to understand if the final challenge of hackasat 1 was to photograph the moon what's ahead so i if we're talking you know from the final event type of challenges we try and build in different challenges that that look like things you might see in a real system so last year we had a a piece of um, software that lived on the ground that was like in a, a, a what we called a, the user segment that was that looked kind of like what like a payload interface might look like on the ground that a a user might use to send data up to a payload and then it was echoed back or you know does whatever it needs to do up in space and then we had the spacecraft itself so we have you know the, the command link and the telemetry link last year for Hackasat two those were always available which is you know, not realistic in a, in a real spacecraft. You're not always going to be able to talk to your spacecraft, especially when we're talking about these small sats. So far, we've been talking a lot about the satellites in orbit, but there's also the ground station aspect. With governments, there are a few uplinks established around the world. But with commercial, 
Either you're buying a ground station time from others, including governments, or they're simply operating in very limited areas and therefore further limiting the time you actually have to be in contact with a given satellite. Kind of the way the systems are built. They, some of these companies might build their own ground stations and put them around the earth. Some of them might be buying time on commercial commercial ground stations. There's all these you know other startups and other space companies that are building these things and making them available as like a platform as a service kind of thing, which is a whole other discussion. One suggestion is that renting satellite time will become as easy as ordering from Amazon. But that's still a ways off and generally beyond the purview of Hackasat today. At this point, Hackasat only wants to reinforce the idea that you don't always have access to the satellite in orbit. You know, they're going to have to realize that they have to balance what they can do um, and what effects they can have as part of the game into these short windows where they have access to the, to the satellite, which is, I think it's going to really be interesting to see how, how things go. And with Hackasat 3 in 2022, already there are repeat teams, teams that have participated in all three challenges thus far. We've had a few teams that have now, you know, will have been finalists um, for all three years. And that's exciting for them, you know, as they building up all this knowledge over time. But at the same time, we have to try and make it accessible to, you know, a team that just qualifies this year, um, which is we One way we handle that is by making all the old material available that they can go download and try and run. In order to have a shot at the prize money, the Hackasat rules require the teams to write up what they did to solve the given challenges. And these are available on the Hackasat site. These become valuable to new teams, enabling them to see the types of challenges that have gone before. Everybody puts up write-ups of their how they solved the challenges in the previous years and and does all that stuff. That's part of what they have to do to qualify for the prize money that the uh, the Air Force is making available as part of the, I guess it's the, the challenge. Um, like there's a whole like challenge authority that's that's put out by the, the government where they can build these challenges to, um, you know, meet a specific need. Um, so they have to provide feedback and something that's useful to the community. Basically, the U.S. government is trying to get more eyes on the problem of satellites in orbit today. And that's another interesting side of this whole thing is we get to see very unique ways of approaching some of these problems. We've seen we've seen stuff where like, you know, some of the teams did things that we didn't even think about as the designers, which is really cool. A lot in a lot of ways, they're a lot smarter than us in cybersecurity. You know, they come up with ideas and, and, and approaches that were like, wow, that's really cool. And, and that's always blows me away. What folks are capable of, um, especially very, very smart, smart people, which all these teams are made up of, you know, a lot of really smart people. So at the time this podcast went into production, the finals for Hackasat 3 were still three days away. So there's a part two. In the next episode, I'm going to talk about the winners and the challenges they faced. I'm also going to talk more about all those satellite simulations that Logan is creating and how those will be used, not just when there's a capture the flag. And finally, I will talk about Hackasat 4, which really will take place in low Earth orbit. All that on the next episode of Ericode, and I hope you'll check it out. Hey, so I'm just getting started with Ericode, and I have some really cool stories ahead within the IoT and embedded security space. Stories with Joe Grand and others coming up in the next few weeks. 
DM me at Robert Vimosi on Twitter with your feedback. I'd really like to hear from you. And if you like the show already, then I hope you'll subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Error Code is written and produced by me, Robert Vimosi. 